0: And today we'll look at Mark 9, verses 1 through 13. The well-known scene of the transfiguration of Jesus. Let's read it together. Mark 9, verse 1. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments were shining intensely white as no Launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were conversing with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three booths, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer for they became terrified and then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud this is my beloved son listen to him and all at once when they looked around they saw no one with them anymore except jesus alone And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to recount to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, arguing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they began asking him, saying, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. This is the very word of the living God. The war in Ukraine. The outrage over the leaked Supreme Court document. The impending overturning of Roe v. Wade. Or maybe endless scrolling on TikTok has occupied your attention lately there are so many voices that scream for our attention headlines that intentionally try to grab onto the day's events world crises political issues of great significance, uh, politics, or just you're you're getting caught up on your scrolling on Instagram, whatever it is that has commanded your attention lately, I'm here to remind you today that none of those things, no matter how significant they are, and, and obviously some are more significant than others, I mean, the war in in Ukraine is, is of great significance, especially all those who are suffering in it. The displacement of Christians in Eastern Europe is of great significance, not only to their own lives, but to the, the testimony of the gospel in that part of the world. Roe v. Wade is no small matter. I've been praying for 20 years that it would be overturned and that the life of innocence in the womb would be protected. No small matter whatsoever. And then there's all the things that do occupy our attention that aren't of any significance. Uh, Our own profile on the internet, uh, the things that grab our attention, the memes and everything else. None of those things are the greatest issue in the universe though, although they, they beg for your attention. The greatest issue in the universe isn't what kind of car you'll drive or what sort of career you might uh, acquire through your your study and the education. The greatest issue in the universe is not who will say yes to the dress or uh, when you're, how many kids you're going to have or if you're going to have low or high cholesterol or 10,000 other things that this world says you should care deeply about. The greatest issue in the universe is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's no issue that comes even close. The glory of Jesus is the foundation of every other attention grabbing opportunity in your life and the world is full of things demanding your attention but underneath all of them is a greater issue that will define your life not only now but for all eternity and that is the glory of Jesus the the beauty of Jesus, the matchlessness of Jesus, the the character of Jesus on display right now in this universe is of far greater significance than any other issue that is either tangentially or in opposition related to the glory of Jesus. The most important thing in your life It is nothing besides how have you glorified Jesus? Or, to put that another way, the greatest issue in your life and in this world is how have you not glorified Jesus? How have you failed to give him the glory that he's due? Because that's the big crime that should be on the headlines of of all the, the newspapers. That's what should come up on your iPhone is that the Son of God is not being honored as he ought to be honored. This has always been the issue. And it was the issue in the the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we have in Mark chapter 9 is this self-revelation from Jesus of his true identity. And it happens in the context of of the disciples learning and growing and and moving towards a, a deeper understanding of who they are and who Jesus is. And as Mark has been chronicling this journey for us, he's brought us to a mountaintop, not only physically and literally a mountaintop where Jesus will self-disclose his glory to these three disciples, but a mountaintop in this gospel where Jesus will bring us, and Mark the evangelist brings us to this point of realization of the deity of Jesus, the glory of Jesus, his unequaled awesome power and authority has been building up to this. We've seen him heal the blind and raise the dead and cast out demons and teach with authority and power. And now it's as if Jesus will rip away everything that is holding back the scales of the eyes of of these three ordinary men and show them for a moment in time who he truly is. And if they or we had eyes to see Jesus as he truly is, everything else in this life would be reordered around the ultimate, unequaled, awesome, blinding, brilliant glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happens at the Transfiguration. We see Jesus as he truly is. I want to look at this passage in kind of movements here. And I'm, I'm not good at classical music, so I don't know what the movements are called. So I'm just going to call, uh, I think symphonies have four parts usually, but I only got three parts, so forget the music thing. I want to talk about a prelude here. Okay, I think that's the first part. How do we get up to the transfiguration? Okay. I want to talk about a prelude here. And then I want to talk about the pinnacle, what happened on this, this mountain. And then I want to talk about what it produced. Okay, so let's look at this in, in kind of three steps. First, how did we get here? I think that's really important if we're going to behold the unequaled greatness of Jesus, like the context, uh, how we got to Jesus saying what he said at the beginning of this. And then I want you to just look at the actual event, the the disclosure of Jesus, the self-revelation of Jesus in, in his uh, glorious manifestation. And, and all that goes on there with these two Old Testament figures and these three terrified disciples. And then Peter kind of speaking out what, what he's thinking. And then I want to look at uh, what happened as a result of that. So what, was, what did all this produce, this glorious manifestation of Jesus. And and this isn't just to understand Mark chapter 9, it's to help you understand how God's glory should be seen and beheld and savored in your life and what it should produce in your life. If you could today behold the glory of Jesus in this passage, I wonder if you could take that with you and behold his glory as you process what's happening in our world today as you think about the consequences of the decisions that you make in your own life related to who you will love and how you will live. And if the glory of Jesus becomes weighty and blinding to you, then everything else will come into a sharper focus. And so Mark chapter 9, I think, has great help for us to behold and process and then react to the self-disclosure of Jesus as he truly is. So let's start with the prelude. The prelude is is about discipleship. That's what Mark has been teaching us. And from Jesus's calling of his disciples in the first three chapters of Mark, as they left behind their occupations, their families, their, their ordinary pursuits, and they simply obeyed that call to follow me that Jesus told them, we started to learn about what it meant to to be a disciple, what it meant to follow Jesus. And those lessons became increasingly clarified and increasingly difficult as Jesus taught his disciples what it would cost them to follow him. As he did not meet their expectations of what a Messiah should be. Their religion, the Jewish religion, had taken on lots of baggage about what the Messiah should be. And the Messiah, in their mind, should be a general, a military leader, a king of some kind, who would take over the nation, put it all in order, gather an army, and defeat the enemies that had oppressed the Jewish people give Israel their land back and expand her borders and her influence and her significance to be that that shining light of the people of God they were destined to be. And so as these disciples started to see Jesus as Messiah, they brought in all this baggage about what sort of Messiah he should be. And as Jesus clarifies that his concern has so much spirituality to it, so much intersection with the unseen world, the demonic, the the kingdom of God, Uh, they start to learn lessons and have their expectations not met as as opposition to Jesus grows. And instead of favor, as those who are hostile to Jesus plot against him, uh, the disciples are confused because they thought they were the First adopters of this Jesus thing. They're going to be, you know, the cabinet members, and then the rest of the Jewish people will get on board. But that's not what's happening at all. After this groundswell of support, now Jesus' followers are dropping off as his teaching gets more and more difficult. And so, in the prelude, they're learning, and we, along with them, are learning about discipleship that Jesus values. God's commandments instead of man's tradition. He's flying in the face of everything that these religious teachers that surrounded this this era, the Pharisees, the, the scribes, the Sadducees, he doesn't value what they value. He values the word of God. He doesn't value their man-made traditions. And he sees that there is there is a significance not in the external defilements that the Jews were concerned about, but The defilement that's in the heart of every man. And here you have Jesus walking in perfect holiness and purity and calling out sin and defilement in every area of society. Calling out injustice, calling out unrighteousness and showing that the heart of man is truly defiled and needs to be redeemed and saved. Through a series of parables, Jesus has instructed the disciples that they need to have a clarified vision of both eyes and ears to see him as he really is and and to let go of their worldly expectations, their unbiblical concepts of what it means to have the Son of Man among them, this this God-like figure who had been prophesied and, and longed for, was going to operate on his terms and not on theirs. And so as Jesus feeds the multitude and heals the sick and casts out demons and clarifies what it means to follow him, the disciples are growing, slowly growing in their estimation of who Jesus is, of the role he has in uh, as the Messiah of God, as the uh, chosen and anointed one of God, uh, his plan for uh, the reconstitution of the nation of Israel uh, is, is not what they thought it would be and among all their confusion clarity starts to arise as he continues to show them and draw out of them by teaching and by asking them questions about themselves and about him and they start to see who he is the prelude to the transfiguration is is that moment in mark chapter 8 verse 27 when jesus asks his disciples who do people say that I am, and Peter, inspired by God, says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one of God that we've been waiting for. And Jesus told them, don't tell anyone about it. And I've told you why that is. It's because they would be the worst evangelists in the world right now. Their understanding of Jesus is so inadequate so insufficient, so distorted that if they were to go and announce to all of Israel, the Messiah is here, the Messiah is here, according to their expectations, uh, this is not how Jesus has planned his unveiling. And so Peter is on to something, but not everything, when he says, you are the Christ, because then Jesus begins to teach them of the predominant place that suffering will occupy in the lives of all who follow Jesus because Jesus himself has to suffer. Chapter 8 verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man, that divine title from the book of Daniel, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter, one of the you know, three most prominent of his 12 disciples, takes this personally and rebukes Jesus for speaking this way because that's not the plan. G- Peter has acknowledged Jesus is the Christ. It's been revealed to him from God. And now... Jesus is talking about his impending death and suffering and uh, some kind of resurrection. And Peter says that's not the plan. That's not his understanding of Scripture. That's not Peter's uh, understanding of the traditions. That's not what the expectation of the Jewish nation is. And so Jesus sharply rebukes Uh, Peter sharply rebukes Jesus and Jesus in turn sharply rebukes Peter by telling him, get behind me, Satan, you're setting your mind on God's interests, not on God's interests, but on And then Jesus again begins to carefully instruct not only his disciples, but the larger crowd that's come to him for these free meals and to be healed by his uh, powerful hand. He tells them all, verse 34 of chapter eight, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. And so Jesus puts discipleship in, the, in terms of self-denial rather than the raising up of self. That they have to, if they're gonna follow Jesus, like Jesus be brought low in humility, to be scorned, to be suffering, to be killed, to deny themselves and to follow Jesus involves taking up their cross and going where Jesus goes. This is a radical statement to show them that discipleship will cost them their lives. And then he tries to explain to them that the way to gain their life is by losing it. That the conventional understanding of self-protectiveness will not serve them well in the kingdom of Christ. That God is calling them to follow his son. His son is on a road of suffering headed towards a cross of death and all who follow him will only gain their life by losing their life, and it's worth the exchange because in the end they'll stand with Christ. And so the prelude to the glory of Christ being revealed is the, the prerequisite of suffering for Jesus, of following Jesus to the cross, of self-abandonment and self-rejection and a concern for closeness and proximity to Jesus as he walks towards a destiny of suffering and rejection and death. That's the prelude to the glory of Christ. We also see it at the end of this passage. After Jesus reveals himself, they trying to recover from the experience, ask him a series of questions. Uh, Jesus says not to tell anyone what they've seen. We've already seen that repeatedly throughout the gospel. Jesus tells them, don't go tell it on the mountain, hide it under a bushel, yes, and don't let it shine. Um, But he gives them a timeline in verse 9. Until the Son of Man rises from the dead. And for some reason, that's the phrase they pick up on because, again, Jesus seems obsessed with his own death, and Peter has already rebuked him for that. And so they're asking now, they know they can't go after the death thing because that didn't go well when Peter tried it the first time, so maybe they can go after this resurrection thing because obviously it must be some sort of metaphor or you know, concept that they're not quite understanding. What do you mean, rise again, like... Uh, you know, a new start, or what What? What does it mean, this resurrection concept? And so they ask him, uh, you know, about that statement by asking about Elijah, one of the characters who appears with Jesus and, and Moses in the Transfiguration, which we'll look at momentarily. They ask the question, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now, The Messiah, the promised one, David's son, the king of Israel, the the fulfillment of all God's promises of salvation, the one the Old Testament had longed for and the people expected, was associated, I've told you this before, with two figures predominantly. One being Elijah, who's the prophet, and one being Moses, who's the mediator of the law. Uh, He wrote the the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He is the the most central figure in all of Judaism, uh, perhaps and and likely even uh, revered and esteemed more than their father Abraham. If you asked any Jewish person who is the greatest uh, of of all uh, of God's people, uh, I think 10 out of 10 would answer Moses. If you ask me uh, who my favorite person in the Bible besides Jesus is, I would tell you it's Moses because that was God's favorite person in the Bible. Uh, Moses cannot be seen uh, high enough and and bright enough. And next to Moses is the one who represents all the prophets, whether it's Ezekiel or Jeremiah or uh, Micah or whoever you want, pick your favorite prophet there is one prophet who is sort of the forerunner of the prophets. He even had a, a seminary for prophets. He was the, the, the beginning of the prophetic line, and he was the one who stood for all the prophets. His name was Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah were promised to be associated with the coming of Messiah in Old Testament prophecy. The place you'd find that is in Malachi chapter four. Both names are given. The spirit of Elijah and the spirit of Moses are associated with the coming of the Messiah in Malachi chapter four. And so Peter's question is a good Bible question. He's asking why, disciples are asking, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus affirms that that's exactly what needs to happen. Elijah does come first and restore all things. And yet, how is it written of Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Their question is briefly answered by Jesus. Catch this. Elijah does come first. In Matthew's account of the transfiguration, Matthew helps you understand by saying, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist because John the Baptist was an Elijah-like figure associated with Elijah because he's in the line of the prophets. Remember, Elijah started the school. John the Baptist is their their final and greatest graduate. So John the Baptist is an Elijah-like guy in so many ways. We've seen that. And so Jesus says in verse 12 of Mark 9, Elijah does come first and restore all things. John the Baptist's ministry set the table for the coming of Messiah. And so Jesus is telling them that. But then Jesus, in his unguessable way, reorients the conversation once again, away from eschatological questions about the role of the prophets and Moses and and where they will occupy uh, things in Messiah's reign and just brings them back to this main issue of the prelude to the transfiguration, which is the issue of suffering and death. Verse 12, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus is insistent that they go back to their Old Testament and find the truths about the promised suffering and rejection of David's son which they could find in many places in the Old Testament, predominantly in Isaiah 53. They would find prophecies that show that this chosen one of God will suffer and will die and will be treated scornfully and abused by the people of Israel. Israel's greatest son will be the victim of Israel's hatred and animosity. And because this is such a tough Hill for the disciples to swallow, Jesus just keeps coming back to it. Whether he's talking about the cross in the requirements of discipleship or whether he's redirecting their questions about Elijah to the necessary suffering of the Son of Man and his treatment with contempt. And Jesus says in verse 13, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished just as it is written of him. In other words, if they treated Elijah's great a culmination in John the Baptist with disdain. In other words, they chopped off his head. How much more so will they treat the Christ this way? Why am I belaboring this in the prelude? One, I think it's, it's the context of this passage. You can't just take this as a Bible story about glowing. This is the necessary preparation For beholding the glory of Jesus, you have to understand that it entails suffering. You have to understand before the disciples, you or them, can partake or enjoy or appreciate or delight in or be transformed by the glory of God, you must first accept the terms of engagement. And the terms of engagement are the cross. Jesus will suffer and die. And so your expectations as a disciple are not to be well regarded and thought of highly and to be esteemed in your society and to be warmly accepted because of your universal kindness. You will be treated badly if you follow Jesus. If everyone is treating you lovely that's because you're probably not following Jesus. You don't have his mark on you. You're not associated with him unless you suffer with him. This is the way of discipleship. The way of discipleship, if you're following Jesus, is the way of the cross. Before the transfiguration, Jesus insists on it, and as they debrief the transfiguration with those three disciples present for it, Jesus redirects their thinking To the suffering that is required if they're going to stay the course with Jesus Mark is making a massive defense of the cross at the shadow of this cross shines across the entire gospel of Mark and as Jesus makes one foot in front of the other marching towards Calvary towards Golgotha towards being hung on that instrument of death by the Romans in cooperation with the religious leaders of the Jews. Jesus needs them to understand that the cross is necessary for salvation and the cross precedes glory. Suffering is needful if you're going to follow Jesus and if you will, along with following him, eventually behold and partake of his glory. So I can't talk to you about the pinnacle of this story until I show you that the prelude is death and a cross. So take that as the prelude. The pinnacle, the prelude concludes with verse one of, of chapter nine, a verse ripped out of its context and confused to be some weird kind of eschatology, some end times thinking. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God having come in power. Some people have uh, rightfully attached that to verse 38 uh, and separated by far more than six days from verse 2 and made that some kind of You know, eschatology, Jesus must have returned before the last disciple died. There's viewpoints out there like that. The problem is, is that Jesus doesn't agree with them. Verse 9 is simply saying, some of you here, disciples, will not die until you see the kingdom of God having come in power. And so that Mark knows that you won't be confused, he says, and six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. It's just another prelude, underlining of the necessity of death and suffering that will come to the disciples, but first they will have a glimpse of the glory of Jesus. And that's what happens in verses two through verse eight. And so here's the pinnacle. Six days later, Matthew says it was eight days. I don't think it's like a big contradiction. I think six days later, Matthew's probably counting the day that Jesus gave the speech and then the day of the transfiguration. And so that makes it eight days. Don't be so woodenly literal and weird. Matthew even says about eight days later. So he's either guesstimating or he's including those bookend days. I already spent more time on it than it was worth. Verse two, six days later. Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain alone by themselves and he was transfigured before them. Transfigured is a super religious word. Catholics like the word transfigured. Church of the Transfiguration. And it's so religious that we'd never use it, right? If your friend gets a haircut, you know, big haircut, or a makeover. You never say, wow, you look transfigured. But that's what the word means. It's not that weird of a word in Greek. It's the word for, we get the word metamorphos from. It's metamorphosai. It's a word about being changed. Jesus was, was altered. He was changed. Something shifted so they could see Jesus in a completely different way. And I think what they saw is Jesus as he truly is. Philippians 2 describes the incarnation of Jesus, as Jesus putting aside his divine nature. This, In this moment, there is a glimpse of what it looks like when that divine nature is on a full display without any veiling, without any curtain, with with eyes to see. And so Jesus is metamorphosized. He is changed before them, and he is shining brightly. Verse 3 gives us another snapshot. So he's transfigured before them. What does that mean? Verse 3, his garments were shining intensely white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. I I don't know why Mark uses that terminology. It's all he's got, right? He doesn't have high voltage lights. I mean, Matthew says, Jesus' eyes in the transfiguration account of Matthew and Luke both shine, his eyes shine like the sun. And so I don't know why Mark says, you know, brings in laundry <laughs> here. He's got really clean AF1s. You know, it's like it's like not even that clean. It's cleaner than that. So he brings in some ordinary kind of of, of whiteness to say it's not that. Whatever the whitest white you've ever encountered, the, the glowingest, cleanest look that you've ever seen, this is whiter than that. And, and it's shining intensely. There, there's other accounts in the Bible of the glory of God shining, right? Right? In fact, Moses is involved in, in, in several of them. In Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain. You don't have to turn there. I'll just give you the ATD version. Moses goes up the mountain. Uh, he brings with him 70 elders. He brings with him Joshua, the wingman, and uh, a few other leaders. And as he goes up the mountain, he leaves some of them behind, and just him and his assistant Joshua go up, and God reveals like his platform to Moses. Just the the part underneath his feet, and God doesn't even have feet. So it's all some kind of description of glory beyond human comprehension. And it so radically affects Moses that Moses' face shines when he encounters God. The same thing happens when Moses receives the the tablets from God. And, And that's a different kind of shine because... Moses is reflecting the glory of God. It's not emanating from Moses. It's, it's bouncing off of Moses like the moon reflects the, the light of the sun. It's a, a deflected kind of, of glory and absorbed kind of reflection of this light. That is not what's happening with Jesus. It's coming from within Jesus. So his garments are shining intensely white as Jesus Uh, radiates this sort of light and whiteness and glorious appearance that's something like the shining of the sun. And as the disciples undoubtedly are, are shielding their eyes, as Jesus is transforming to show his glory to these three men from his inner circle, appearing alongside of Jesus is these two most central figures in Old Testament who are associated with the Messiah, Moses and Elijah, and they're both there. How did they know it was Moses? How did they know it was Elijah? I think it was because they knew what Charlton Heston looked like, so obviously they recognized Moses. No, I, I, because the, all Jewish kids had coloring books, Moses had the beard, Eli- no. I think the way they knew is that they talked about it. It's why it says they were conversing with Jesus. Elijah appears and Moses appears and something happens in their conversation where these blinded disciples who can't quite take this scene in and who by their own admission are terrified and confused about how to respond, they the only thing they have figured out is that was Jesus he's different now and now Moses is here and Elijah is here this is so far outside of their comprehension it's terrifying to them it's overwhelming they don't know what to do they don't know what to say and when the disciples don't know what to do and don't know what to say Peter thinks it's a good time to talk and so he does and I don't, I'm not mad at where Peter's at here completely. And remember, Mark is Peter's ghostwriter. There's a 500 page book by Richard Bacham about it. If you don't believe that, it's, it's just the case. Mark is getting this from Peter, it's Peter's eyewitness account. And Mark fills us in on why Peter spoke. Verse six, he did not know what to answer for they became afraid. And Peter speaks up and says to Jesus, must have been a lull in the conversation with Moses and Elijah. Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And he's right. It was God's will to bring them there. Jesus selected the three of them, brought them up on this mountain. It is good that they are there. And then he makes a suggestion. Let us make three tents or booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants to make this scene permanent. As permanent as you can on the top of a mountain. And if the people of God for centuries worship God by way of tabernacle, perhaps tabernacles would be appropriate here. Tents in which Moses and Jesus and Elijah can occupy, keep the conversation going, bring in messianic rule and reign, and do exactly what Jesus said, which is see the kingdom of God having come in power. Peter recognizes that it's here. The kingdom of God is here. The glory is on display. Let's keep this thing going. But there is a deep, Deep confusion in Peter, one that is so dangerous and so relevant to every single one of us. And it's that Peter has put Jesus on the same level as other things. He has seen and beheld the glory of Jesus. But the presence of Moses and Elijah is a distraction to Peter because he's looking at all of them when he should be looking at what Elijah and Moses are looking at. Moses knew the drill. Moses had been in the presence of God before. Moses had beheld the glory before. Elijah had been taken up in a chariot to heaven to behold the glory of God and to be transfigured from life to eternal life. These guys knew that they were in the presence of the glory. Glorious One. Peter put them for a moment on the same level. Three booths, one for Moses, one for Jesus, and one for Elijah. And God is offended by the suggestion. And so a cloud of glory comes in and overshadows everything. And now my understanding is it would just be a cloud gleaming white shooting out of it no longer able to see Moses, no longer able to see Elijah, no longer able to see each other or King Jesus. All they see is this glory cloud, a cloud that often accompanies divine manifestations. Throughout the scriptures, the cloud overtakes them and the voice of God comes with the same expression that came at the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist. God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. As if to say, this isn't about Moses. This isn't about Elijah. And disciples, this isn't really about you. This is about my son, the eternal, matchless, unequaled Son of God, whose glory is being revealed. He and he alone should be listened to. No more talking. No more suggestions. And then the cloud dissipates. And as if to Underline and reinforce the supremacy and unequal greatness of Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. And it says in verse eight, at once they looked around and they saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And then they come down the mountain and they have that conversation with Jesus again about suffering and they've tasted the glory of God. That's the pinnacle of it. So what does it produce? I hope it produces in you what it produced in these disciples. Not at first, but after the resurrection. They would come to see the unequaled greatness and glory of Jesus as unworthy of any other competition. It would reframe their lives in such a way that they would lay their lives down as promised and prophesied for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. No other issue in the world, in world history, in their own personal lives and families would be seen apart from the matchless unequaled glory of Jesus What they tasted that day, they would live for until the day of their death and then would experience for all eternity. And when they would speak of Jesus from this point on, it would be with an awareness of how that day they saw Christ as he truly is and it made them see everything differently. And so Peter preaches Solomon's porch in Acts 4 and tells the crowd you put to death the author of life who God raised from the dead. He goes on in his sermon to say, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is Christ would die and thus be fulfilled. Repent and return so your sins might be wiped away in order to times of refresh you may come from the presence of the Lord. Who does he sound like when he says that his Christ would suffer? That's exactly how Jesus used to preach to Peter, and Peter used to deny it vehemently. And now look at Peter preaching the suffering of Christ. In this same sermon, chapter 3 of Acts, verse 22, Peter says, he quotes a guy he met once, Moses. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. To him you shall listen to everything he says to you. That's Deuteronomy 18, 15, where Moses prophesied that someday a greater Moses will come. And now Peter sees who that greater Moses is. And so Peter's preaching is one of the products of beholding the unequaled glory of Jesus. Jesus. When Peter was dying, or at the time of his death, a very old man, one of the last surviving apostles besides John, he would recount this story in his second letter to Peter chapter 1, verse 16. This is how he describes what he saw on the mountain that day. For we did not make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, following cleverly devised myths, but being I." witnesses of his majesty." For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have as more sure the prophetic word to which you do well to pay attention to as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the a morning star arises in your hearts. Peter says, I beheld, what? Majesty, glory, honor, majesty, light from heaven in the Son of Man. And you could behold it too through the words that he preaches, the prophetic word. Peter is saying all of Scripture including the words he's preaching and writing at that moment, are on an equal level with the glory that he beheld with his own two eyes. Friend, if you have beheld the glory of Jesus, then the way you see your Bible will be as a means to further and greater see the glory of Jesus with the eyes of your heart. That's what it meant for Peter. For Peter, it meant a life that was willing to die because he would share in a greater glory. For John, it was the same thing. He would continually say, brothers and sisters and little children, in his epistle, undoubtedly in his mind, the voice of God to his son, calling him my beloved son, Peter knew what Paul would know that we are all sons and daughters because of adoption, because of our association with Jesus. And so Uh, John would see himself as one of the heirs of the love of God, as a a partaker of the love of God. And he too would live for the glory of God. So when he wrote his gospel, which doesn't have an account of the transfiguration in it, instead he just says in in the prologue in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you have beheld the glory of Jesus in the gospel, through the scriptures, by being saved by his perfect life and his atoning death, then that glory should sustain you and captivate you and drive you so that in everything you see and do in this world, you do it for the glory of Jesus Christ. You have beheld the unequal greatness of the Son of God. May it change you for all your life and fit you to behold that glory for all eternity. Father, thank you for the unmatched supremacy of Jesus Christ. Give us Eyes to behold spiritually this truth, to see the the supremacy and glory of Jesus, and to see everything else in our lives, in this world, and in the lostness of sinners, to be crying out, to be shown the glory of Christ, and to be transformed to that same glorious sons and daughters. Fit us, O God, for eternity. Give us eyes to see the glorious one. Amen.